Now, between 389 and 395 AD, uh, a man called Paulinus, a grandee of the late Roman world, took a religious odyssey. It was by all accounts sensational and even scandalous. To say that Paulinus was rich is an understatement. He was fabulously wealthy, a man of sterling pedigree, a senator in Rome, an old order aristocrat. He was among the Roman super rich. Paulinus' cash flow, they say, was so abundant that the imperial government would borrow money from him in times of scarcity. Then something happened, something changed. The prince became a pauper. He renounced his wealth and his social standing, and he did it of his own free will. It was a bizarre but attract, with, with a bizarre but an attractive gladness. And you better believe that it sent ripples to the Roman world. It made the headlines for years after that. That was Paulinus' response to Christ's call. And in it, the world witnessed, to quote one commentator, a very large camel passing through the eye of a needle. In the remaining years of his life, Paulinus systematically divested his inheritance. He no longer applied it just to himself and to the advancement of his family and their name. It all got repurposed, building churches, caring for the poor, educating the unlearned, and many other extraordinary works of mercy. This type of display of wealth was quite distinct from the typical exhibitions of wealth by those at the top of the Roman socioeconomic ladder. Romans, the rich Romans loved to show off. To echo historian Peter Brown, quote, to possess and show splendor what was what being rich was all about. Wealth was your glory. It should be constantly boosted and boasted. Paulinus, however, had come, come into a different glory, a self-emptying glory, a strange glory. Christianity has a tendency to do that. In the midst of all this, one of his oldest friends wrote him repeatedly, pleading with Paulinus not to commit social suicide. This friend, who was not a Christian, even started praying to the Christian God that he would intervene and stop Paulinus from doing this. And this man, together with many of Paulinus' peers at that time, was absolutely dumbfounded. Why would you squander your inheritance? Why would you waste your status and your glory? Have you lost your mind? Why would you do that? Indeed, why would someone do this? To put it bluntly, because Jesus is God. And in him we see the aristocrat of all aristocrats renouncing his wealth out of immense goodness and of his own free will so that poor sinners might be made rich. That's how Paulinus came to see it. As have many others in church history whose lives display equally radical shifts in all sorts of different ways. If Jesus isn't God, nothing really changes. But if he is... Nothing's ever the same. But is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? That's one of the most important questions we can ask about Christianity because Christianity, you see, is not ultimately a worldview or a set of beliefs or a collection of rituals. It does not reduce down to those things. Christianity at root is Christ. Stands and falls on one singular person. Apart from him, everything else collapses. I mean, Jesus' moral teachings were great. Though not altogether unique, many other great religious leaders taught similar things. And Jesus' good works were impressive. But that's not why we're here. Frankly, we're here because of Jesus' identity. In the New Testament, the book of Colossians, chapter 1, the apostle Paul writes this, quote, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. By him all things were created in heaven and earth. I want you just to consider again how astounding that claim is. The human being, the man Jesus, is divine, fully and holy. If you're not a Christian and you're here today, you know how shocking that claim is. 
But if you are a Christian, maybe you've gotten so accustomed to that claim that it washes off of you like water off the back of a duck. I've fallen out of touch with how radical it is. I've lost a sense of the great implications it carries for my life. And so anything similar to Paulinus' own action is distant from my existence. This type of malaise can happen. It happens to me. It happens to you. Is Jesus God? That's the question we're going to explore. And as, as that question situates in the church calendar, today is a very apt day for such a discussion. It's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is tied to what we read about in Mark chapter 11, Matthew 21, Luke 19. It's that day which remembers Jesus' entry into Jerusalem the week before his crucifixion. This was not a mundane and inconspicuous entry. It was the entry of a king, though not in a grandiose way. That's why it's called the triumphal entry. And the people who were there understood it, which is why they cast their cloaks on the road and waved branches when he passed by and cried out, Hosanna. Hosanna does not mean, yippee, hooray, throw me some candy. That was, this was not a Mardi Gras parade. It's much more solemn. It's the language taken from Psalm 118. It literally means, save us now. Save us now. And that's what you say to a king, a good king, or God, or both, especially when they're two in one. These are some of the things we discussed when I preached on Mark 11 back in January. Palm Sunday is about Jesus making a debut and further revealing more fully who he is, Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you'll be aware that the church has long claimed that Jesus is God. It's a claim that's grounded in the Bible. The writers of the New Testament say as much. They give Jesus names and titles associated only with God himself in the Old Testament. They tell us that Jesus did things, deeds and works that only God himself in the Old Testament did. Forgiving sins, healing Casting out unclean spirits, calming stormy seas. When the waves get, get when the waves got huge, Jesus rebuked them. Sound, sometimes I imagine he sounded like a southern mama trying to crying, trying to quiet her whining child. Quiet hurricane. Quiet hurricane. Nobody has power over the sea but God and Jesus. And Jesus also accepts worship. We read about that in John chapter 20, verse 28, when Thomas the disciple looks at Jesus and says, my Lord, my God, Jesus does not reject that statement of worship. And so according to the apostles, if you scratch Jesus, you touch God. If you scratch Jesus, you touch God. But who does Jesus himself say that he is? Does, does he himself confirm the claim of the apostles in the church? Does he himself substantiate it? In answering this question, grappling it, we, we do very well to turn to John's gospel. There's no better place, in fact. By way of comparison, Mark's gospel gives a lot of attention to Jesus' extraordinary deeds. Matthew's gospel gives us a lot about Jesus' moral teaching and the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel, it's the historicity of Jesus that's center stage. John's gospel takes up the question of who Jesus thinks he is. And John chapter 7 and 8 are especially telling in this regard. They make me feel like my shoes should go off because I'm standing on holy ground. That's certainly the case with today's verses where we see Jesus making some colossal claims about himself, his identity. So let's plunge in. Let's listen to what he says. And as we do this, we're going to consider three simple questions. Number one, who does Jesus say he is? Number two, who do his opponents say that he is? And number three, who do you say that he is? You got that? So who does Jesus think he is? The answer comes at the climactic point of today's text. That's verse 58 with two little words, I am. 
Now, to understand, to marvel at this statement, you've got to put it in context. So let's do that. John is very careful to tell us, chapter 7 and verse 2, that everything Jesus does in chapter 7 and 8 are occurring during the Feast of Tabernacles, sometimes known as the Feast of Booths. In that setting, everything Jesus says and does is exploding with meaning. The Feast of Booths was one of three major annual Jewish festivals. And this feast, it seems, had three key elements or features. There was a water ceremony, there was a light ceremony, and then there were words of remembrance, a liturgy of sorts. And all of these features looked back and recalled important events from the Old Testament. Let me show you what I mean here. The water ceremony, a very dramatic affair. This part of the feast recalled Israel's years of wandering in the desert, 800 years before the time of Jesus here in John's Gospel. And in a time of great thirst, out in the hot sun, God intervened and spoke to the leader of his people, a man called Moses, and he said this. He said, Moses, strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. That's Exodus chapter 17 in the Old Testament, and that's what happened. But the water ceremony also looked back to certain prophetic words in the Old Testament, words uh, such as Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14, prophetic literature. And if you go there, you'll find that God is speaking about his intention to one day pour out living water, life, on all of his people. Jesus is fulfilling this. That's what John 7 makes clear. This is what verse 37 and 38 tell us. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, come to me and drink, and your heart will be filled with living water. And then the light ceremony. It seems that was equally as impressive. It celebrated a God who guides. In this feature of the feast, the temple in Jerusalem would be lit up with four grand candelabras. They each stood about 75 feet high, and they had oil torches on the top, and they would be lit up in the evening, and a glow would cover the city, cascading down from the Temple Mount. Impressive sight, no doubt. All of this recalled the flaming pillar of fire that was God's presence to his people during their desert years, and that's the pillar of fire that led them out of slavery in Egypt into freedom and into a new destiny. And now we see Jesus fulfilling this too. That's what's going on in chapter 8 and verse 12 where this is what Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. Now after the water and the light ceremonies, Jesus says something more about himself. And this plugs into the words of remembrance or the liturgy. As we've seen, the Feast of Booth is all about remembering God's presence with his people. God is a God who dwells with his people. And in the Old Testament, God's presence was signified by this thing called a tabernacle. It was a tent for God, a way of palpably manifesting God's presence with his people. And that's why the Feast of Booths culminated with the speaking of words that remembered God's decision to be near, to celebrate God's presence. Now these words, this liturgy of remembering, it was taken from various parts of the Old Testament, but especially from Isaiah 40 through 55. And if you go to Isaiah 40 through 55 and you give it even a cursory read, you'll notice that there's a lot of I language in those passages. I am the first. I am here, says the Lord. I am the one who saves. I am the eternal one. I am your king. That's what you read. The Hebrew phrase behind this English, I am, the Hebrew there is a little phrase, anywho. Say that with me. It's not hard. Anywho. There we go. On our way to being a a congregation of Hebraist. Anywho. And anywho just means I am he. And eventually it got translated to Greek right here in John chapter 8, and it became 
ego a me. It means the same thing. Anywho, ego of me. Now, some of you are falling asleep because of this linguistic data, but it's very important. And let me show you why. You need to catch this ball. By the time of Jesus, these little pronouns, anywho, ego of me, I am, they had become the essential language of the Feast of Booths, and they pointed upwards. They had become shorthand for the Holy One Himself, for God. Scholars say that during the feast, there was actually a choir parked in the temple in Jerusalem. Their job, it appears, wasn't too hard because all they did was chant, anywho, 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 back and forth to each other throughout the entirety of the feast. Folks, these little words reverberated in the minds of all the first century pilgrims who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Booths. These were the words circulating in the hopes of the men and women and children who were there at the feast, waiting in anticipation for God to show up. And it's into this situation that Jesus speaks. And how does he speak? He speaks using these highly significant little pronouns. It starts in chapter 8, verse 24, unless you believe that I am he. And then again in verse 28, then you will know that I am he. In this setting, that is arresting language. It's eye-popping language. We've got a carpenter from Nazareth uttering the sacred pronouns of God's self-revelation about himself. And it's no surprise, therefore, that things intensify. There's a reaction, white-hot anger. Verses 39 and following give us a little, uh, a little, show us a little back and forth that ensues. And Jesus' self-declaration about his identity reaches a new pinnacle in verse 58. He makes an even stronger claim. He doesn't just say, I am he. He calls himself, I am Before Abraham was, this is that odd verse, before Abraham was, I am. And the people listening are infuriated. What do they do? They don't pick up swords. They don't get out rope to tie a noose. They pick up rocks because they know exactly what he meant. You see, their minds raced back to the Old Testament, to Exodus chapter 33. And if you go to that passage, you'll read about the the highest, most profound Statement of divine self-naming. That's where Moses is on top of a mountain and he meets God and God reveals his personal and covenant name to Moses and the people of Israel. And in Hebrew, it's known as Yahweh. Yahweh. Guess what it means? I am that I am. Moses and all the people of Israel and all their descendants right on down to the time of Jesus knew that that name was so holy they refused to say it, to write it, or even spell it out fully. That's why there are no vowels. That's the holiest possible word. You get a sense of its holiness and its gravitas if you look a little bit ahead in John's Gospel, chapter 18. That's the passage where Jesus gets arrested. And some of you will know this. The temple officers arrive at the garden, and Jesus says, Whom do you seek? And to which they reply, We seek Jesus of Nazareth. And to this Jesus says, I am he. And guess what happens? Who remembers? They draw back and they fall to the ground. They were so used to hitting their knees when they heard that phrase, anywho, that that's all they could do. It's a reflex of reverence. Jesus literally floors them. Anywho, I am. That's what Jesus utters, but he doesn't just put it on his lips. He takes it on himself. Takes it on himself. Here's what Jesus is saying. I am the uncaused cause. I am the one who is self-existent and transcendent over time. There is no beginning or ending to me. I am not a being who exists. I am existence itself. That's what he's saying. 
And that is why the one who heals, the gentle carpenter, the one who loves like nobody else loved, is all of a sudden an object of human wrath because he says, I am. And that statement to Jewish ears was blasphemous, which is why people start picking up stones because stoning was the penalty for blasphemy. Is there any confusion about who Jesus says he is? Now keep that in mind as we consider now who his conversation partners think that he is. His words, of course, sound blasphemous to their ears, but what is their independent appraisal of Jesus' claims about his identity? Well, verse 48 and 52 lay out one response pretty starkly. For some of these folks, Jesus is demon-possessed. And sort of a, his consciousness has been captured by a dark force. And then there are others who seem to conclude that he's mad. He's off his rocker. That's verse 57. Uh, they're trying to make sense of what Jesus is saying about Abraham in normal historical terms. There's no way you could have known Abraham, Jesus. You're not even 50. How could Jesus have known Abraham? How could he have seen Abraham rejoice? Abraham lived a, a thousand years ago. These guys clearly aren't very bright, are they? Of course, we can see this misunderstanding. They're on a different page. Their way of thinking fits into what Jesus is saying like a square peg into a round hole. And so in the end, all the, all the folks, all of his opponents, they either conclude he's bananas or he's a lunatic. Jesus is either possessed or psychotic. I want you to notice, however, what is not said here. This is what they don't say. They don't say, wow, Jesus is a great teacher, even if his claims about divinity are a little bit odd and wacky. Nobody says that. That's what we say. That's what a lot of us say. But it's ridiculous. And I think, truth be told, we can actually learn a lesson from Jesus' opponents right here in John 8. Imagine with me for a moment. Let's take a little imaginary field trip. You're visiting Chapters Bookstore, North Shore location, where Sammy J works. So, of course, you've said hello to Sammy J, the man born to be manager, and then you migrate onto the religious literature section. And while you're perusing the spirituality books, someone stands up on a shelf-reached stool and makes a speech that parallels what Jesus is saying right here in John chapter 7 and 8. Now, how would you react to that? Even if the person was saying some wise, insightful, beneficial things, we probably wouldn't say, you're a great teacher. I appreciate what you're saying. I think most likely we would respond just like Jesus' opponents did. We'd, we'd say either this, this person's either psychotic or possessed. And since we're late modern Vancouverites, we'd probably conclude that the person is psychotic. Somebody call the white van and those nice people with the straight jackets, please. And friends, here it is. When you come to terms with who Jesus himself says he is, you begin to see there are only a few alternatives by way of response. He's either a madman, perhaps a demoniac, or he is who he says he is. There's no middle option, not the slightest, at least if we really listen to what Jesus says. C.S. Lewis penned the tale on this donkey. No doubt you've heard it before, but humor me again this morning. A little excerpt from Mere Christianity. This is what Lewis says. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a person who says he's a poached egg. Always love that turn of phrase. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. In other words, what Jesus says about himself limits our options of response. He wants us to get off the fence. On his own terms, he simply cannot be classified as a great religious teacher or a guru or a moral sage. Again, to borrow from Lewis, let me read you one more thing. Says Lewis, there is no halfway house and no parallel in other religions here. If you'd gone to Buddha and asked him, are you the son of Brahman, Brahma, he would have said, my son, you're still in the veil of illusion. If you'd gone to Socrates and asked, are you Zeus, he would, have, he would have laughed at you. If you'd gone to Muhammad and asked, are you Allah, 
he would have ripped his clothes and then cut off your head, close quote. Jesus, by his own testimony, cannot be pegged as a great moral and spiritual teacher in the vein of these others. And that determination is only strengthened when we notice that in the New Testament, Jesus was never regarded as a mere moral teacher. He did not produce that effect on the people that actually met them. He tended to produce mainly three effects, either hatred, terror, or adoration. There is no trace of people expressing mild approval of that type to which so many of us are prone. That's the Jesus of the Bible. What he says about himself demands a proper response. There are only a few options. Jesus is saying, you either crown me or you kill me. You crown me or you kill me. I'm either a liar or a lunatic or I am the Lord, and anything else in the middle lacks integrity. Friends, the only people who really saw and really understood who Jesus is are the people who killed him or the ones whose lives were so transformed that they turned the world upside down, people like Peter and Paul and Mary and Martha and John, but also people like you and me. Crown me or kill me. That's what Jesus says to, that's what he says to us. That's what he says to me. That's what he says to you. And so we reach our third and final point. Who do you think Jesus is? It's a question we got to answer because he, this is how it goes with Jesus. He never lets things stay at just the information level. That's how it was with his first followers. If you go read Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, you'll see that after spending many months with them, one day he popped the question, who do you say that I am? How'd they answer? They fumbled around. They said, well, this guy says you're that, and this guy says you're this. And then Jesus inter interrupts, and he says, but who do you say that I am? You might say Jesus is a bit like a timeshare vacation salesman. Years ago, our family sat through one of those sessions in exchange for a free vacation. I think it was Disney World. You got to sit and listen, and you know an invitation is coming. And you really want to get out of there, but they locked the doors. <laughs> Jesus is as relentless as this. He is as relentless because he loves us. And so the question always comes, who do you think I am? Who do you think Jesus is? And our response, if it's going to have any integrity, has got to line up with what he says about himself. Therefore, what Jesus says about himself right here in John 8 needs to be the basis for our decision. Now, some of us have false and inaccurate apprehensions of Jesus. We pick those up all over the place. Sometimes our view of Jesus is a projection. We project a bad father onto him. We project ourselves onto him. That's rather uninspiring. Sometimes we try to fit Jesus into the grid of new age spirituality. Maybe that's what's happening to me when I'm at yoga and I stretch and it hurts really bad and so I exclaim, Jesus! Who knows? Sadly, sometimes we can even pick up a false vision of Jesus in the church. I continue to be struck by the observation of American psychiatrist and author M. Scott Peck. He had a very notable conversion worth reading about, and after that he wrote about it. And this is what he had to say about the Gospels. He said, quote, if the Gospel writers had been better at PR, they would have given us the Jesus that most Christians and many churches are still trying to create. In contrast to such skewed depictions, the true Jesus leaps out on virtually every page of the New Testament. But even so, in some churches, the Jesus of the Gospels is the best-kept secret in Christianity. But today, here in John 8, the secret is out. Do you see Jesus as he is? If you do, you cannot be indifferent. You can't just appreciate someone like this. You can only crown him or kill him. Now, in closing, let me press you a little bit with some application. First, let me say something to those of you who might be on the fence. You're on the fence. Why is that? It's okay to hang out for a while. Don't get me wrong. But there comes a day, and maybe it's today, 
when Jesus looks at you and says, who do you say that I am? Perhaps you're on the fence because you've not really come face to face with Jesus' identity in a very clear way. And if that's the case, I pray that John 8 would give you 20-20 vision. But maybe you're on the fence for other reasons. They can be good reasons. I do believe you. Perhaps you like God and you like Jesus, but you don't like the church. There are many good reasons for that. You're right. But because of it, you've concluded that Jesus was merely a great moral teacher and a lover of people, someone of an inspirational example. Yet at the end of the day, and listen carefully here, you can only settle on that type of opinion because your view of Jesus is a fantasy. Yes, Jesus had good moral teaching, inspirational. Yes, he lived a beautiful life. You better believe it. But you can't stop there, not based on what Jesus says right here in John chapter 8. At this juncture, it's worth remembering that the first people who accepted what Jesus said about himself were Jews. And as you may or may not know, Jews were the last people on earth who would be willing to acknowledge a human being as also being God. But even so, those men and women were eventually compelled to ask themselves the same question before us right now. Could a demon, a lunatic, teach and love and change people like this? Think about that. Let me say also something for those of us who are on board with Jesus. We've been baptized. We come to church on Sundays. We're part of a St. Pete's community group. We say the creeds. You sing the hymns. But do you throw yourself at his feet? Do I fall before Christ, the great I am, in my heart and with my life in adoration and reverence and submission? Maybe you don't. Maybe you don't really treat Jesus like he's God. But if he is God, we've got to take the limits of our allegiance off. Jesus is not here to be an occasional prayer buddy or a fireman for crisis moments or a PA to ensure that our life plays out according to our agenda. Let me put it like this. For many of us, Jesus may good and well be living in the suburbs of our lives. He's like that uncle out on a farm somewhere that you see twice a year. But that is not who or where Jesus is meant to be. Jesus means that God has come into your life and God belongs downtown in the center of our lives. And therefore, to believe Jesus is who he says he is means that we got to stop everything and let it be reoriented and rearranged around him. Everything, our work, our money, our sexuality, our priorities, Jesus sets our priorities. It means forgiveness for those we loathe, love towards those we may hate, generosity in the face of fear. It's about ceasing to try to, stopping trying to tell Jesus what he should be doing, and instead just saying, you command me. Brothers and sisters, we don't want to acknowledge Jesus as God formally while sitting on the fence functionally. That is what the scriptures teach very clearly. So who do you say Jesus is? He needs to be number one or he shouldn't be there at all. Think like that. Today is Palm Sunday. Do you see who has arrived?